0: Three hundred nine. As you always come to uh, New Covenant, you'll find that I like to bring the word cloud up and remind you that you're in a Bible-believing church. Uh, We are unashamed of this gospel that's found in the Bible. It is, these are the words of eternal life. You'll find them no place else. You can't turn on the TV. You can't uh, turn on the radio or get a podcast. The only way people know about eternal life is if they get that information from God. And Jesus told us, don't let your heart be troubled uh, because he started to share about it. He said, I go to my father's house, John chapter 14. And because I know all about that, I'm preparing a room, preparing a place. I'll come again. And then those famous words in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way. There's no other way to eternal life except through Christ. Now, uh... I also want to tell you that when you come to New Covenant, the Bibles are not just red because that's the color. We want the Bibles to be read because people R-E-A-D them, uh, that you open up the Word and you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed. Today we're going to be looking at a particular text in the New Testament epistle of Jude, uh, and this is where I will always want to call you to uh, consider this is the uh, inspired, infallible, uh, this is the 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 word of god as given in the originals it's inerrant this is the truth and this is where our foundation is and i want to be able to take you there Uh, I'm not going to read it to you in the originals, but we'll be reading in the ESV. I want to take you to our text today, which is found in verses 20 and 21 uh, and 22, uh, which is Jude wrapping up his expression. I've been focusing quite a bit on Jude during this last month and about his apostasy, uh, but I want to pick this up, and this carries on our theme of prayer. If you look there, let's reverently attend to this public reading of Scripture, verse 20, but he says, but you... But you, beloved, and of course, he's writing it to Christians. You can see that back in, uh, in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He says, but you who are called by God, kept in Christ, beloved. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And praying in the Holy Spirit. That's our text today. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he adds on this extra one in verse 22. And have mercy on those who struggle or who doubt. And uh, I'm going to read the whole passage for you in a moment because I want you to see it in context. Uh, but this is God's word. Uh, and, and so these 25 verses, I want to, I want to tackle it for you uh, from verse 3 down to verse 23. Uh, Let's look through that together. And you can hear this emphasis that leads us to conclude uh, those those things about prayer. Okay? Beloved. This is verse 3 of Jude. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once. For certain people, let me emphasize certain, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated to this condemnation. Those certain people are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and other feelings. And they ultimately deny our only Master and Lord. They deny Jesus Christ. These certain people that have crept in. Verse 5. Now, beloved, I want to remind you Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, that is Jesus, has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment day, until the judgment of that great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise, they indulged in bad behavior. It's immoral and sexual. Um, they pursued unnatural things, their, their lust. Those, those cities serve as, exam, as an example of, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, these certain people, Also, relying on their dreams, they defile their flesh, they reject the actual authorities that are in place, they blaspheme the glorious ones. And when the angel Michael, contending even with the devil himself, with Hasatan, was disputing about Moses' body, that's back in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and following, he did not presume to pronounce even a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord, Kurios, he should rebuke you. Verse 10. But these certain people blaspheme. They give credit where it's not due. They give credit to things that they shouldn't be crediting. They give God's credit away to others. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand only instinctively. They don't understand the truth, but they understand their instincts. Whoa. Whoa to them! You can hear his passion and emotion. You get an exclamation point in most translations. For these certain people, they walked in the way of Cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Even though these are not sequential in history, they're historical examples. And then he gives these metaphors about these certain people. They're like hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, Shepherding or shepherds feeding themselves instead of their sheep. Waterless clouds. In other words, clouds that don't bring rain. They are swept along by winds. In other words, they go with the, the latest polling. They're fruitless trees in the late autumn. In other words, they don't even produce. They're twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea is what they're like. They cast up the foam. In other words, they make a lot of activity and and make foam, but it only is to their own shame. They're like the wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They just seem to be wandering. In verse 14, he mentions a few more historical examples. It was about these kind of people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. He said, Behold, the Lord, this is God himself, is going to come with his angels, 10,000 of them with his holy ones, and he's going to fix it. He's going to execute judgment, verse 15, on them, on all of them, to convict them of their ungodliness. And he mentions their ungodly deeds, their ungodly ways that they do them, and, and he also, he, he just mentions everything about them is ungodly especially how they speak, showing such disrespect. Verse 16 tells us about their ways. They are grumblers, malcontents. They're following their own sinful desires, their lusts. They are loudmouthed boasters. And they use their favoritism to gain an advantage. They'll bribe you to get what they want. And this is where our text comes into play. But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means makes you think of Peter and, and James and the others that were gathered in the upper room. Remember what they told us? And in particular, it's Peter, because you can read about it in 1 Peter 5. And he says, They said to you, verse 18, that in these latter days, or in the last time, when you're discerning the times, you're going to know that there's, there will be scoffers. These people that are not with us, they're scoffers. It's exactly what Psalm 1 said. They sit in the seat of the scoffer. They don't delight in the word of God. They follow their own ungodly passions. Verse 19. It is these certain people who cause division. They're worldly people. They're devoid of the Spirit, capital S. Devoid is just another word for saying they don't have the Spirit. They're missing the Spirit. Verse 20. But you... If you're understanding the text now, that's a huge word. It's a transitional word. All of this bad stuff. But, you know, there's certain people over here, but you, but you. And he reminds them that they're believers and they're called by God and they're beloved in Christ. He says, but you. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on the rest. Not on those certain people, but have mercy on those who struggle, who doubt. Who are, not, who are just the sheep following these others. Save them by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, with reverence, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, don't even give room to some of their sinful conduct that they're saying is okay. Don't even give it a little bit. It's like a stain, just like the one on my shirt. He says, Hate the, gar- the garment that's stained by the flesh. That is the text. We're going to conclude with the doxology in a minute, but the reason I bring, have to read that for you is that I've got some questions for you regarding, uh, regarding this praying in the Holy Spirit. We have this prayer vigil that's coming up in a few, in a few weeks. And uh, when we come together to pray, I, I almost, I ask that question, how many of you felt the, the, the burden or the com- compelling nature that you have to be there? You won't miss it for the world. Most of you don't even know about it. Okay. The idea of calling people to pray for three hours, it's like as a pastor, I'm saying, well, what can we do? Can we feed them? Maybe we can make it a long enough in, later in the morning so that they can get their beauty sleep and get up and not be cranky. And maybe they'll show up for the last hour. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I really don't want to make it sound like I'm kind of guilting you or anything, because really, it's not about guilt. It's about revealing where we are as a culture. We are not excited about prayer. The only time that you are really inclined to pray and to send a prayer request to the church office to be put in the bulletin to be on that sheet is, guess what? It's when something really, really, really bad happens. Or when something really, really good surprises you. It's almost like we're the product of extremes. We don't really go through and and utilize prayer as being normal. And I I asked the question why is that? There were many years of my marriage where Tracy and I didn't pray together. We had our own prayer times. But something happened when the kids turned teenagers. We developed some conversational prayer that's really unique. It's really interesting when you fight in prayer. God, will you do this? Oh, God, will you make it like this instead? I mean, it's really fun. We've understood prayer differently. Do you? The title of this message is Let's Pray. Let's pray. And the reason I'm calling you to pray is because that's what Jude said to do. Jude put this in as, an, as a, not as an imperative, it is a, uh, a clause, a participle clause, and it's, it's of significance. It's found there after you hear all of the troubles that are going on in this fallen world, and he says, but you, praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, let me switch to the other side of the pulpit, and I'll put on my theological hat on. Oh no, if we preach about praying in the Holy Spirit, everybody's going to be confused. That means that we must be a charismatic church. That we, we have to pray in some special way, some esoteric or some, some, some mantra we have. And maybe even we babble. Maybe even we, we make noises and that's how we pray in the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that even today there are many that claim to be Christians that are confused about this? And in order to resolve their, conclu- their confusion, they adopt a position. Maybe you have been one of those. I hope you're not confused. But I also hope that you haven't adopted something that's not biblical. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? In the New Testament, is there many kinds of prayer? Can you pray, can, can you pray in the Holy Spirit? And can you pray in a different way? You know, there's things in the scriptures I can show you, even in the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus set an example in prayer. Now, He prayed alone. There was times where He would withdraw from the crowds and He would go into the hills or He would go into, like, the Garden of Gethsemane. I think He was there quite a few times. He'd find a quiet place and He would be there alone. And He would pray. Was He praying in the Holy Spirit? Or was He praying differently? See... Many of us don't even know how to answer that. Because what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Do you know how many times in the New Testament that is commanded of us? Let me give you a thought. It's less than the number of my fingers. Two times. Once by the Apostle Paul, and now once by Jude. You might as well read them. If you would bring up the verse uh, in, in, uh, I believe it's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Now, for those of you that are familiar with Ephesians, chapter 6 is where we are told the first verse my kids ever learned, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is... You don't know that verse? For this is right. My kids knew that verse from the very beginning when they could speak. For this is right. Now, in chapter 6, though, it also tells us that we are to be ready to fight. We are to put on the whole armor of God. And if you look at verse 18, praying at all times... Do you see it? In the Spirit. This is a part of putting on the armor of God, having the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of peace, having the sword of the Spirit, having the helmet of salvation, having the breastplate, as I said, of righteousness, but the girdle of truth. I mean, all of these things are so important. But then he says, you need to pray in the Spirit. Okay, pastor. So you got me. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? What does it mean? We've got three questions I'm going to raise in this text today. I want to answer those questions. First is, who is the Spirit? Second, I'm going to ask is, what is praying in the Holy Spirit? And thirdly, I want to conclude, why is Jude calling us for this kind of prayer? Why is he calling people to pray in the Spirit? Uh, In other words, the first part of it is, you don't know what praying in the Spirit is if you can't identify the Spirit. And then secondly, we'll look at what it actually means when we know who the Spirit is to pray in the Spirit. And third, we'll look at the motivations or the reasons that Jude gives us to pray in the Spirit. The first thing I want to be able to say, in, if you have your Bibles open in verse 20, you can see keeping yourselves in the love of God, uh, but that comes right after, excuse me, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, immediately the, the point is, is there is a Spirit there. And uh, if you look at the text, can you see it there? Um, is, it, is it a small S or a big S? Okay. It is clearly being understood by the translation that this is talking about a person. This is a real identified person. This is not a theory or a, um, a spoof. This is not just an idea. This is identifying a first person pronoun. Or, uh, basically, this is this is. The Holy Spirit is a person, okay? And that's how Jude identifies him. That's also how Paul identified him in Ephesians chapter 6. The Spirit. The Spirit. It's not just a generic spirits. It is the Spirit. And Jude tells us one adjective about the Spirit. And did you pick up on it? The Holy Spirit. Now, those of you that are uh, just fanatic... Uh, you might think that holy means like Swiss cheese with holes. That is not what this word holy means. H-O-L-Y is a word that comes in from the Hebrew, and it understands the idea of set apart, the idea of weighty and heavy. Uh, When you start to understand what it means when when we're going to sing in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you're going to be looking at somebody that is set apart from everybody else. And so when you apply the word holy, it is really, really unique. It is not applied to things on this earth very often. Now, ironically, pastor, well, in the same verse, the same word is there. Back it up at the beginning. And he says in verse 20, at the beginning, keep yourselves in the love of God. Excuse me, I keep going to 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So the same word holy is applied to the term faith as it is applied to the spirit. Now, I'm wanting you to make sure that you pick up on this. Now, the idea of holy in Jude is set apart against the word ungodly. You see the difference? If you have the ungodly over here and you have the holy over here, then you can clearly see that the ungodly are not holy, and you can see that the holy are godly. And so when you start to realize, and even how the text itself explains it, the idea of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is a spirit, a person, who is holy. People have struggled with this since Jesus went up into heaven. There's been a lot of theologians that wrestle with, well, what is the Holy Spirit? There have been a lot of heresies that have come up. Some people are thinking, well, we only believe in one God, so you can't have three persons in one God, because that would mean there's three gods. And so they wrestle with that, and in order to try to be monotheistic, or one God, because you remember in the Ten Commandments it said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Basically it sounds like one God. So then you wrestle with, well, what is the Holy Spirit if he's not God? He must be a lesser God. And so then they came up with these theories about even Jesus being a lesser God. The Holy Spirit is a lesser God. And they had all these kind of weird things. They even had some folks be creative and they said, well, God is one, but sometimes God transforms. He has like a metamorphosis. Sometimes he shows up as the old guy with the beard on the throne. And sometimes he comes as this nice, meek and mild-mannered guy that walks on the earth and, and feeds everybody bread and then there's sometimes he floats around like Casper, and he goes through walls and stuff like that. He's a beautiful spirit. Now, that, that idea of modalism, that he just changes the mode. Well, the church of Jesus Christ looked at that and said, Wow, that's pretty creative. But it's wrong! Don't fall into that trap. Don't lean on your own understanding. Follow what the Scripture says. Jude is introducing us to the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. Now, I clearly want to teach you that the Spirit of God is not something new. And and some folks who think that the Holy Spirit just showed up on the scene in the New Testament. Because you love Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God comes down in power. And he lights everybody up like a candle. You know, almost like they just have a wick on top of their head and they glow. You can read about that at Pentecost. Very exciting stuff. When the Spirit of God came in power. But because he came in power, guess what some people think? Well... Jesus said he was going to finally send the Holy Spirit. So I guess the Holy Spirit was never here before. And you fall into that trap of thinking, well, this is a new era. This is a new dispensation. This is when the Holy Spirit finally showed up. We're really glad that Jesus prayed that he would come, but Jesus had to get out of the way so the Holy Spirit would come. Do you see how all of this stuff is actually wrong thinking? Because I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not a new phenomenon in the New Testament. If you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, and you have the text for the wall, Genesis chapter 1, you can clearly see in verse 2 that the Spirit of God was there. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was there. And if I took you to Genesis chapter 1 at the end, uh, or whatever, I could also tell you that when God starts to do things, He says, Let us... Make man in our own image. And later he says, and, and let us make a covenant with man. Now, did you pick up something that was a little unique? The word us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I could take a lot of time to explain to you that Jesus was there too because John in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So you have the Word or the communication, which is Christ, is God. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 1. The express radiant image of God It is is, is came to dwell among us and to speak. In times past, God spoke by the prophets and the apostles, but now he has spoken us by his own son. Now, when you realize this, the idea of the Holy Spirit is not that there are three gods, but there is one God in three persons. They are equal in power and in glory. And I can take you through all of Scripture to be able to show that they are there. The one that's significant is in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is being set apart to be a high priest. If you could be there. Every time I've taken tour groups over to Israel, we've gone to the Jordan River, and they say, this is where the dove came down from heaven. Now, I always get distracted because the Jordan River is so mucky. It is so dirty that it's hard to believe that that's the river that Jesus used to be set apart as a priest. You know, they say that he was baptized, but he was set apart to fulfill all righteousness. You can read about that from John. John was unwilling to do that for the baptism of repentance because Jesus hadn't sinned, because Jesus was God. And and John says, I'm not worthy to do this. And he says, do it in order to fulfill the Old Testament righteousness. And so that's where you have it. Now, when this event took place, God the Father spoke. God the Son was there receiving that commendation and being set apart. And God the Spirit affirmed it. The Spirit of God came down like a dove and landing on him. Some of you that are pretty creative would picture him like a little bird on his shoulder. It's not dove is is just symbolic of peace now when you realize that the spirit of god has been there throughout all of time i want to take you to acts chapter 7 this is a place that nobody ever looks in acts chapter 7 there is a verse there when stephen is a deacon and he actually starts preaching and when he starts preaching he makes this interesting thing you stiff-necked people i never do that to you guys Praise the Lord. But Stephen was preaching to these religious crowd and uh, they, weren't, they weren't having it. He says, you're stiff-necked. You won't listen to the scripture. You're uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is looking at these religious people and he says, you don't embrace, you don't pray in the Holy Spirit. You resist the Spirit. And then look at the next one. As your fathers did and if you went to the next verse on verse 52 you know who the fathers were they were the ones that rejected the prophets and this is one of the interesting things that the holy spirit was rejected by the people even in the old testament era as they were in the new testament era people don't know the spirit i took you last week to to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says in verse 14, the natural person doesn't understand the things of the, the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to them. They cannot discern them because they're spiritually blind, or I like to say they're spiritually dead. They can't discern it. They don't have the Spirit. To quote Jude, they're devoid of the Spirit. Now, having said this, you have this point... The first point is if you're going to pray in the Holy Spirit, I want to make sure you realize that this is the Holy Spirit, equal to God the Father, equal to God the Son. Now, I can get into a bigger case and explain how that there is an order to it. Just like in your family, who's in charge of the finances? That's maybe a bad question to ask. Okay, but when I, when I talk to you, somebody is the authority, somebody is the nurturer, and somebody is the activities coordinator, Okay. And in a sense, that's exactly the order that God has in heaven. I can show you how normally in the patriarchal system, you have the father is the head of the home, and then you have the wife who's the supporter, often the one that brings the baby in and nurtures the baby, and then you have the kids who end up getting you to do things you never thought you would do. Usually spend money. Okay. Now, having said that, the order in the Godhead is you have the same kind of thing. One is not more important than the other. They each have their roles, and they one submits to the other, and the other submits to both. It's really fascinating how it all works. Now, now you know who the Holy Spirit is. Now, the next question is, how do you pray in the Holy Spirit? The word in is, is often translated from the Greek word, the en, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are in a location. It's kind of like we're all in Lewis right now and that would say that we're locationally right here your GPS would find you. This is not saying that you're in the Holy Spirit. In other words like the Holy Spirit is here and you have to get in the Holy Spirit. Normally the language of the of the apostles is, is that the Holy Spirit is in us. Romans chapter 8 explains it very very well. But if you want to understand praying in the Holy Spirit, I'd like to simplify it for you like this as it's praying in accord with the Spirit. It's praying in concert with the Spirit. Now, let me explain it to you if we can go to Romans 8. Because this is where a lot of the, the, the teaching comes in. In Romans 8. If you have your Bibles open, you can clearly see there. Uh, in I believe it's verse 26. Uh, I, can, I can have a few of these verses. Uh, Romans, Romans 8. You can find that the Spirit... Yeah, it's on, it's on the back page of the, of the fourth point... Uh, in Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit, so you get the capital S, Spirit, the same Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, you may be cheating and looking to the next verse. Uh, I'd like you to go to verse 26, please. Okay, If you're, if you're looking at the next verse in verse 26, you're going to find that in the next phrase. The Holy Spirit helps us because we are struggling okay, we are, we need help, okay? And that's why it says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We do not know how to pray. Okay, this is what the Apostle Paul is writing to the people, to the believers in Rome, and he says, you know what, let me explain a little bit about this praying in the Holy Spirit. You need help when you pray, You don't even know how to pray. You don't know what you ought to pray for. And so this Holy Spirit knows that you're weak in this area. He knows that you struggle. He knows that it's not natural and comfortable for you. At least typically it's not. So the Holy Spirit will help you. Now, let's look at how he helps. If you have that verse there, you look. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, and that that reflexive property, the Spirit of God is intentionally, this is his task, his duty. He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, this whole idea of groaning, it's not like, Mmm, that was really bad of that guy. Mmm, you know, it's almost like trying to lift 100 pounds off the ground, maybe 500 for you. But, I mean, if you're groaning to try to lift it up, the Spirit doesn't groan like that. The Spirit doesn't groan because you're not good enough. He knows you don't have the ability. The Spirit takes these things that we offer in our weakness, and He brings it to the throne of God with passion. He brings these petitions The Spirit of God is the conduit to take your prayers, whether they're verbal or whether they're just from your heart. You know, these prayers that you may have your eyes closed and focused, or if you're driving, I hope your eyes are open, your prayers are actually still directed to God. The Holy Spirit helps us. He takes these things and He gets them to the throne room. It's really beautiful when you understand how this works. And that's why in Romans 8 at the beginning, I'm going to take you there a little earlier. I, have, um, I had a couple more verses that I want to highlight. To understand the spirit of God, I believe it's in verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared to what's going on in heaven. Now, Paul starts off with this and he says, you know what? Your earthly situation, I know it's not so good. Most of you would say your earthly situation is including struggling. Uh, If there's anybody here that has no struggles whatsoever, please stand up. I want to go to lunch with you, and I want to spend a lot of time with you. Hope you'll rub off on me. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to think about the future. For creation is longing. It's waiting eagerly. It waits it waits for something that's going to come. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And this is where he said, when sin entered into this world, everything in this world got sad. Because now there's thorns and thistles. Now there's tragedies and, ish, and, and complications. Creation is wishing to be set free. Verse 21. Verse 22, for we know that all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, if you look back over history, you're going to find struggle, struggle, struggle. You're going to find people usurping power, and you're going to find all this bad stuff throughout all of history. And it struggles even to the present tense, he says. It's almost like uh, like a pregnant woman wanting to deliver a baby, waiting for some hope until now. Oh, yeah, the baby did come. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. Uh, he goes on to say that the Spirit, in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. We don't even know how we ought to pray like we should. The Spirit intercedes, verse 27, and he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Let me just put it this way to answer that question. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It is for you as a Christian to pray according to God's will. It's to pray in concert with the will of God, and the Spirit reveals that to you. Man, it's really not that complicated. This is not some kind of ecstasy. This is not some kind of babbling. This praying in the Spirit is just a Christian praying. I can show you throughout all of the New Testament when people prayed. Now, the Holy Spirit did come upon people in the New Testament era. There were some special affirmations of it. When the Spirit did come in power, it was because he had been waiting to release that power until Jesus died on the cross. He had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until the fullness of time when God finally sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4.4, to redeem us. Once God sent His Son, and once the redemption was made on on that Good Friday, when Jesus died and paid for our sins, then He rose from the dead when He ascended to heaven, then the releasing of the power of the Spirit, it was authorized. The Father said, now you can do it. Jesus said, you're going to receive power. The Holy Ghost is going to give it to you. He's already here, but you're going to get it from Him, and you're going to be witnesses to me everywhere. And the Holy Spirit says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Some might argue that might be to the end of the apostolic age but I believe that it's going to be to the end of this age of earth. The Spirit of God will be with us to take the gospel to the ends of this earth in missions. It's really cool. That's why we look at it. Every month we, get, we go back and say, that's what Jesus told us he would do, and the Holy Spirit's going to be enabling us to do it. Now, this last question that I raised for you that, that is in here is, the question is, why is Jude calling us to pray in the Holy Spirit? Why? Why? And the the quick answer is this, and and if you look at the verse before it, you have your Bibles open, you can see it in Jude. Uh, He ends up explaining it so, so simply. He said that the people, the certain people that cause all these divisions in verse 19, they are devoid of the Spirit. In other words, all of these folks that bring in apostasy, they creep in, they have their form of religion, they do all their stuff, they do not have the Spirit of God. They don't, but you do. And so he's saying you who have the spirit of God pray pray That's the big thing here is that they don't the secular people and you can see it in the elections when they tell you that what their forecast of the future is it's miserable it's awful it's terrible they don't have the spirit and as a result they have no hope they sorrow as those who have no hope they think everything we do is making it worse and they might be right But our hope is not in this world, but it is in the world to come. And the Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray. So when we talk to God, now, I'm making this application about why they needed it. They needed to be told to pray because they were overwhelmed with what was going on. Certain people had crept in, and they did a great job of tricking people, confusing people. They brought their sensuality and their emotions. Oh, you deserve better. And people fell for it. And instead of listening to God, they ended up listening to these secular fads and the popularity among the peoples. And he says, but you, Jude says, but you, it's so needful for you. You need to fight. You need to contend for the faith. And then he says, it's holy faith. And you need to pray. Now, I ask this basic question. Why don't you pray more? You're too busy, right? The reason we don't pray is oftentimes because we don't think we need it. I've liked the analogy of praying to breathing. Okay? How many of you don't breathe? You know, you you breathe all the time. In fact, when you quit breathing, guess what happens? Nobody pays attention to you anymore. You know, when you breathe your last breath. You see, prayer is just like breathing. That's why in First Thessalonians, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now, in breathing, there's two parts. There is the inhaling and the exhaling. And I always like to do it this way. You inhale the good stuff, the oxygen, and you exhale the stuff that needs to go, the, the, the breath that doesn't have any more oxygen. That's why it's carbon dioxide. Okay, you take in the good, you get rid of the bad. You take in the good, you get rid of the bad. Take in the good, get rid of the bad. If you had a prayer life that was similar to that, you would be taking in the truth of the scripture, praying in the spirit, and you would be getting rid of the things that need to go from your life. Confession. When you take in, it's like adoration and thanksgiving. You get rid of the confession. You take in the adoration and thanksgiving. It's so beautiful when we pray. But the reason why there's an admonition to pray is because we are not prone to pray. And, and I take you to Hebrews chapter 11. He says, those who believe in God must have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that believes must believe that God is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. Now, if you seek God, that's another way of saying you're praying. So Hebrews eleven six, You need to believe that God is out there. And you need to believe that that God that's out there actually can do something, that he can reward accordingly. Now, just take this and drink this in for a moment. If we don't pray, it's either that we don't believe that God is out there, or we really think that he doesn't need, we don't need him. Jude is trying to tell folks, the Christians, look, it's so earnest of me to tell you, don't cave in on the faith. Don't compromise it. Don't let any little crack it. Don't, don't, don't let it. don't let division come in on the truth of Scripture. Don't let it happen. But talk to God about it all the time. Because when you talk to God, that's what makes sense. It is pretty neat when you realize it. Uh, if you take your Bibles open, there is a sequence here. Praying is the second of the parcels. What, are the, what is the first one? Open up to verse 20 and you'll see it. He says, um, after he says the people are devoid of the spirit, those certain people that have done all the bad stuff, he said, but you, beloved, the first possible is building yourself up. Building yourself up in what? In the faith. Where do you get the faith? Do any of you have a factory that can produce faith? If you do, I want to come over and get some more. You know, do you have a grocery store where you can buy it? Where do you get faith? See if you can finish this verse. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Faith comes from the word of God. God puts faith in you. If you want to say uh, Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest you be able to boast. God gives faith to people. He opens their eyes up. I call it the helicopter view. When he takes away the scales, and voila, you can see. Once you can see, then he says build yourself up in the holy faith. Where are you going to get this faith? You're going to get this when you're studying the word of God. And I believe that if you follow along with Jude, Jude echoes what Peter has said. Because in verse 17 he said, remember the predictions of the apostles? He said, don't you remember what they said? That there's scoffers coming in the latter days? And Peter was trying to tell them, build yourself up in the holy faith. He was telling you to study. And Paul in 1 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. Study the word. Or when he tells Timothy at the end of his his career, he says the word of God is quick and powerful. That's Hebrews. But then he says that it is God-breathed to Timothy. He said it's able to equip you for every good and perfect work which God has before ordained for you. 2 Timothy 2.17. Now, having said all that, the application is, shall we pray? Shall we pray? In conclusion, I I bring up a couple of points. The catechism, if you could bring up the catechism. Some people like what was written back in 1648. There was a group of guys that got together, and they argued, and they argued, and they argued for five years. And finally they said, what is prayer? And prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. Okay, Our desires to God. It's you talking to God about what you want to talk about. It's the same thing that should be on your cards that you're filling in to put in the box. It's you talking to God. Now, when you look at it, it also says, for things agreeable to His will. That is an application of praying in the Spirit. Do not pray for something that's evil and sinful. The Spirit of God does not rejoice in that. He's holy, holy, holy. If you're praying in the Spirit, you're going to pray for things agreeable to His will. Which is exactly what Jesus taught the disciples. He said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what the Spirit shows up in your life to show you the right way. It's really easy. In the name of Christ, because He's our mediator, with confession of our sin... And with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies prayer is that now if you bring the next slide up i've been trying to just summarize it for us a little bit especially for the prayer vigil as we make application prayer is basically two things prayer is talking with god and enjoying god now if you just get that in your mind prayer is conversing with god makes me think of the first date there was a girl that i ran into when i just visited my mom uh, back when I was in seventh grade, she was in the holiness camp back in those days. And of all things, she told me that she couldn't date me because I didn't have the second blessing. I just ran into her. Like, last week. And now we're old. She, she didn't even remember those days. But I'm like, I've used you as an illustration over and over and over. And she says, well, now she's, she's, she has forsaken all that stuff. And she's really, she's right on cue. But back in the day, she was one of the first people to tell me that I wasn't a Christian because I didn't pray in tongues. Oh, man, there I was as this little teenage boy trying to figure it out and making sure that I could beat her with my theological arguments. There was no satisfaction. But this issue about talking to God is what I'm trying to say. I remember the passion she had to to want to talk to God. And I look around at so many Christians who don't have that passion. Why don't you want to talk to God? Are you trying to hide things from Him like it'll be better? I mean, I know that's the way when you look at earthly parents and you, and you're, and you have a busy life or you spend money, you often don't. Hey, Mom, what do you think about me spending money on this? Uh, Dad, do you think that was a good price to pay for that? Should I have done it or should I not have done it? You know, when you're littler, you get more of those conversations. When they get bigger, you don't get any of those conversations. And I think that's the way it is for us. We are close to God and we pray in the spirit until we have lived a little longer and now we don't need his help. Uh, You do. Talk to God about everything. And the way I was putting it there, talk to God about God, talk to God about our sinful hearts, and talk to God about his broken world. Now, when you figure this out, that three things, if you talk to God about God, what does that match up with? Adoration. Do you think that you know more about God than God? Do you? I bet you if you sat down and tried to talk to God about God for one hour, I'll tell you this you might get exhausted, but you'll never exhaust him man, he is awesome. Talk to God about God. Learn about God. Share what you've learned about God. Tell him about it, and he'll shape your understanding. You'll see it clearer. The second thing is interesting, though, is when you talk to God about yourself, this is not narcissism. This is confession. Talk about being real, and instead of saying adoration, I call this agreement. Start agreeing with God about who you are. Are you perfect? Are you Joe Cool? Are you The Queen Lativa. I mean, are are you so great? My goodness, if you think that you're so wonderful, you're missing the boat. Talk to God about you. And if you need a little help, talk to your spouse, talk to your best friend. They'll probably help you. They'll help you talk in agreement with God. And when you get everybody saying everything wonderful about you, you often are missing the boat. You need to talk to God about you because when you talk about you, you're understanding how far we've missed the mark. And it leads to 1 John 1.9. If we confess, agree with God about ourselves, he is faithful and just to forgive. You don't even have to ask forgiveness if you agree with him about your sin. Because when you agree with him about sin, then you're going to hate sin and you're not going to want to do it anymore. It's called repentance. The third thing there is talking to God about our broken world. Now, we live in a broken world. How many of you think that we're living in a, in a non-broken world? I don't think anyone's going to argue that this is not a broken world. I mean, every movie, every TV show, even Hallmark movies, you see how there's always a jerk. There's always a fool. And they almost walk away from love every time. And it's like it doesn't take but little bitty this or a little bit of gossip or a little bit of that. And it just ruins everything until somebody does something kind and nice and breaks the pattern. You see, when we talk to God about our broken world, you know what ends up coming up? Michelle's broken bones. Matt's liver that's not working. What else is broken? You end up talking to God about what you're seeing around this world, about our broken country, about about people who are trying to create a heaven on earth because they don't have the spirit of God. They're devoid of it. When, when When you look around, when you find that money doesn't seem to stretch far enough to pay for everything, you just... These are the things that make you want to pray and talk to God about those things. And when you talk to God, you're usually asking him for grace. God, I don't deserve it. But please, please, heal my daughter. I don't pray for putting hair on my head. That's foolish. But provide for my kids. Give direction to that person that's wayward. Comfort that soul that's brokenhearted because of a funeral. you see what I'm saying? Talk to God about this broken world. You'll never run out of things to talk about. And then th- there's one other part that I've never broken out until today to enjoy Him. You see, where does Thanksgiving fit in? We're going to have a whole sermon on it on Thanksgiving Sunday. You're going to have a chance to, to give thanks. But you know what? I think a lot of us don't enjoy God very much. It's almost like we went out on a date with God and and he he didn't buy for us for the food that we liked or he didn't compliment us enough. You know what I mean? And if you don't have a good first date, what happens on the second date? There isn't one. You see, a lot of us, we, we think that God needs to do all these wonderful things to woo us and to take care of us and to smile at us and say how cute and wonderful we are. And if he doesn't, then we back away. We back away. We back away. And I want to tell you by way of application is that thanksgiving is simply put this way. You enjoy being in God's presence. If you're thankful, does that mean you want to get away? No, when you're thankful, you want to get closer. When you're thankful, you want to enjoy the moment even longer. It's like when you do have a good family holiday. You don't want to go home. Have any of you ever felt that? It's kind of a joke. Okay, My point is, is that when we know God, when we know that He calls us Father, when we know that He will not give us a stone when we ask for bread when we know that he is going to be with us to the end of the age, when we know that he has an agenda and he has seen fit that he didn't take us home yet, we're still here to accomplish his purposes, when we know that God has prepared something that's beyond our imagination, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has entered into these little brains of ours, the things that he's prepared for those who love him, when we know that God, you want to run to him. You don't want to be like the prodigal that stays there feeding the pigs. That's why John the Apostle, at the end of Revelations, he says, at chapter 22, he says, even so, Lord, come quickly. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to spend eternity with you. Brothers and sisters, when we have this prayer vigil, I hope that I will never manipulate you. I may have done so in the sermon. I don't want it to be manipulation. I just want you to hear the Spirit. When you enjoy God, you'll take every opportunity you can to spend with Him. You're not going to have to be like some of my son says down at Liberty University. He says, there's all these thousands of people, but you feel lonely. You never have to be alone. Whatever the valley of the shadow that you go through, whether it's an upcoming surgery... My son with the car accident, when he got out of it and took a look back and saw it, it was like, wow, that was like going through the valley of the shadow of death. So close, if the car would have hit a tree a different way, he would have been gone. When you realize that your life is but a vapor, it's here for a moment and gone, as James tells us in chapter 4, then you're saying, wow, well, I'm here? Well, if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. How do you know if it's the Lord's will? Pray in the Spirit. And actually, the sequence is interesting. Be in the Word of God and pray in the Spirit. And then he says, wait, wait. And if you do these three things, this is how you're kept or guarded in the love of God. I'm going to pray with that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the Word of God. I pray that instead of us being weary and hearing it, that you would stir our souls to pray more. Lord, when the the opportunity is for us to, to hear those words, let's pray. Lord, may it be something that we're encouraging others to join us because we love it so much. Taking time to be holy, keeping close to our Lord. That sweet hour of prayer that calls us from this world of care. Lord, I pray that as we come here today, that we might never forget the love of God that took Jesus to Calvary so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might be able to be called the children of God, that we might be able to have access to the Father in prayer. No longer do we have to come to the judge, but we come as the Holy Spirit teaches us, to see him as Abba, as our Father. In Jesus' name I pray.